John chapter 12, verses 12 through 33. We have seen Jesus getting ever closer and closer to the time of his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. And at this point, we are getting very close. We come to the week of Christ's death. It's the first day of the week as he comes to Jerusalem. Now, we still have about half of the Gospel of John to go because uh, much of the rest of the Gospel is going to recount his teaching to his disciples um, on the eve of his betrayal. And uh, so we are not necessarily close to being done with the Gospel of John, but we are come to a, a certain climax of the book and a turning point, really, in the book in, the ch- in chapter 12. He finally now comes to Jerusalem. It's the moment we've been waiting for in uh, the Passover of that year. I'll go ahead and read John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, my soul, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. O Lord God, we thank you for the good news of the Savior, and we pray that you would 
bless it today that it might find a place in our hearts to be encouraging to us, to strengthen us, and that it might bear good fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus came to Jerusalem. He came riding on a young donkey, the the colt of a donkey. Word had spread of how he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so the crowds that had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, which were very large, you had many people, uh, depending on the estimates you read, you know, hundreds of thousands, a million, three million, it's a little hard to uh, estimate. Um, But vast crowds from all over the world would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And word had spread among those crowds that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Again, that had not been very long before, maybe a month earlier. Uh, And people who had seen it, who were from Jerusalem, were spreading the word. And so when Jesus approached Jerusalem, the crowds came out to welcome him. The pilgrims in Jerusalem came out to welcome their king. They joined those who came with Jesus. So you have the crowds coming with Jesus, you have the crowds coming out from Jerusalem, and they come to welcome him. And they gave him a royal welcome. They waved palm branches like waving flags. They were waving them to greet the triumphant king. They were symbols of of victory and royalty. They used the words of Psalm 118 to welcome him as the king of Israel. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, who is it that comes in the name of the Lord? The king of Israel. Uh, He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, And they were blessing him, uh, extolling him. Jesus himself identified himself as that king. This was not merely the crowds imputing this to him. But he purposefully sought out a young donkey that he might match this prophecy of Zechariah 9. He had not been riding a donkey all the way from Galilee and all the travels that he had been taking. He took it for this very purpose, to ride that you know, mile or two into Jerusalem on the young donkey, that he might show himself to be the promised Messiah. Not that they necessarily understood it <clears throat> at the moment, at least the disciples, the full significance of it. It says even in the text... They understood this when Jesus was glorified later, that, wait a minute, this had been prophesied, and and Jesus had fulfilled it. He did this purposefully. But the Pharisees look on with jealousy. They see that the crowds are going to Jesus. Look, the whole world is going after him. I think they say more than they realize when they say the world is going after Jesus. They meant a lot of the crowds in Jerusalem are going after Jesus. But, in fact... The world has continued to go after Jesus ever since. Now, the Apostle John, on that note, notes that some Greeks had come to Jerusalem. It wasn't only the Jews. The Jews had gone out, been scattered throughout the ancient world. They had gone to Babylon and Persia. There was also Jews living in Greece and Rome and North Africa. And the words, the the news of the God of Israel had been spread as well. In fact, you even later will find in Acts, a court official from Ethiopia had come, why? To the feasts, one of the feasts in Jerusalem. Uh, The word of God had been translated into Greek, 
and the Greek language that had been spread by Alexander throughout the ancient world. And so, yes, there were even Greeks here at the feast had gone up to Jerusalem, and they wanted to see Jesus. And they asked one of the apostles. We don't actually learn much about what happened to those Greeks, but it serves an occasion for Jesus to talk about the fact that it was time now that he would draw all people to himself, Jews and Greeks. He had spoken of this already, that there are other sheep not in this fold, that I need to go out and get them and bring them into one fold, one, one flock, one shepherd. And now some of them were already there. Now the time had come for him to be raised up from the earth, of course on the cross, the beginning of his glorification, that the crucified Christ would begin to draw all people to himself. His death would bear much fruit, just as a seed must die before it's planted and then grows into a plant and bears much, much grain, much produce. So Jesus would die and his death, death would not be ineffectual. It would bear much fruit in converts born to God. And so even though his soul was troubled, he was ready for the hour of triumph through the cross. His father's voice in heaven testified to the glorious results of, his, of this death, that his name would be glorified. Through this death, the Father would be glorified, the Son of Man would be glorified, and those who serve him would be glorified. The main point here in the triumphal entry is that Jesus is the promised king of Israel. He is the king of the daughter of Zion, which is a way to personify Zion as a daughter, as a, as a person. The daughter of Zion is Zion. And Zion represented the people of God, referring to Jerusalem. Um, that's why they all were there for the feast, because symbolically it was a source of unity for the whole people of God. Jesus is the king of God's people. He is the one who would save them, who would deliver them. The heir of David, the promised Messiah, who would gather the sheep of Israel, and in fact all the nations, and would bless them. But we learn that in the resulting dialogue, that Jesus establishes his reign by dying, by this hour that he had come to, that week, that time. And that by his death, he overthrows his enemies, he draws the world to himself, and he brings salvation to his servants. So first, King Jesus establishes his reign by dying. In verse 23, he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. His hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He came to establish his reign over Israel. He marches into the capital city as for his coronation. But how would Jesus be crowned? How would he be established as king? Was, was Pilate ready to put a crown on his head? How would he be glorified? He goes to be lifted up to his throne upon a cross. That is how he would be lifted up. At the very end of the passage, verse 33, when he said, I'm going to be lifted up, he was speaking of how he would die. Because he would be lifted up, exalted above all the peoples on a cross. That would be how he would be exalted and draw all people to himself. His death was humbling, but it was also a triumph. By his death, he won the victory and was raised to his throne. Of course, we know that it didn't end with his death. 
His death led to his burial. His burial led to his resurrection. His resurrection led to his ascension. But the beginning of this was his death. He wins his kingdom by his death. It's that first and pivotal step to glory. His resurrection, his ascension, both affirmed that his death was worthy, that he had in fact paid the debt in full, uh, that the Father approved of this, and that having paid for the sins of his people, he was free to go. So they both affirm what he did by his death. Now, Jesus rejected the devil's earlier way of trying to receive all the glory and authority. If we remember from Matthew's gospel, the devil had offered him all the kingdoms of the world. But on what condition? What was the devil's condition? The devil said, you could have all this if you bow down to me. Jesus rejected that way. It would have been easier, but it was wicked, and he rejected it. He also rejected the crowd's earlier attempt to take him by force and make him king. Earlier in John's gospel, after he had fed them with bread, they were wanting to take him by force and make him their king. But that's not how Jesus would become king. He would not do so by the force of the mob. How would he become king? He would become king over his people, a saving king by his death. And he went on this way despite his human weakness, despite having our nature prone to emotions, human emotions, affections, a sense of human death, bodily death, and a troubled soul. He says in verse 27, "Now Now is my soul troubled. His soul was troubled as he came to this hour. But he says, what should I do? Should I say, deliver me from this hour? No, I've come for this very purpose. This was the only way to truly triumph. This was God's condition, the Father's condition. You die for the people that you might receive the nations as your inheritance, that you might receive all authority in heaven and on earth, that you might save sinners. So see the humility of Jesus He did not uh, come as a great conqueror in his glory right away. His path led through suffering. The road did lead to glory for him, but he came to Jerusalem as a man, riding a young donkey, he who was God over all, with a motley crew of disciples, onward to what looked like a shameful death at the hand of the Romans. Although he was troubled in his soul, distressed in some ways, he submitted to his father's will to receive the promised kingdom. And so he was resolute. How confident he pressed on despite his human fears. How zealous was he for his father's glory? What was his prayer? Father, glorify your name. That is what he rode onward to do. He rode onward to torment. He rode onward to shame. He rode onward to condemnation. He rode onward to death. His flesh recoiled. His soul was troubled. But what does he say? This is my hour. This is why I have come. What does he call this impending tragedy and torment and distress? He calls it his glorification. Jesus, by his death, secured a kingdom 
And Jesus, by his death, secondly, overthrows his enemies, the world and its ruler. In verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Zechariah 9, in prophesying of the king coming in on the young donkey, also spoke of how he would triumph over their enemies. He came to cut off the chariot and the war horse which had afflicted Israel. He would bring peace as one on a donkey, not as uh, one who would afflict them. He would cut off the chariot and the war horse. He would be triumphant. Jesus had spoken of the devil earlier. The ruler of this world is what he calls him here. He had called him a liar, a liar from the beginning, a father of lies, a murderer. He was the ruler of this world by usurpation. He did not create the world, but he came in to draw away mankind from his Lord into a rebellion against God. He deceived the nations and kept them in idolatry and sin and rebellion. But Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to crush the serpent's head, to cast him out of his power. Jesus overcame the world and triumphed over the devil by his death. He says the world was judged. That's the great desire of many of the Psalms. The the Lord is coming to judge the earth, to judge the world. Let us rejoice. It's a great thing, right? He comes to make things right. He is here to put things in right order, to reform the world, to cast out the usurper, to judge this fallen world order which has corrupted his creation. The fallen world order was overcome by Christ, was condemned to pass away with its desires, while the world began to be restored and put to right by his death. The devil was cast out by Christ's death. Cast out of what, we might ask? Cast out of heaven? Cast out of earth? Cast, cast out of his, his place as ruler of this world? Cast out of his position? This is the same as the binding of the strong man that Jesus spoke of in uh, Matthew and in Luke that we read earlier. If you bind the strong man, then you can plunder his house. If you bind and overcome the devil, take away his power, take away what he has to hold man in captivity, then you may plunder his kingdom and lead forth the host of captives in your train. Similar to the binding of the ancient serpent in Revelation 20. What's the point of the binding of the serpent in Revelation 20? It's so that he may no longer deceive the nations as he once did. Now, they may be one for Christ, not just the Jews, but all the nations. The devil is cast out of power so that the devil's kingdom, the world, might be plundered by King Jesus. The devil remains active, but his power is broken, and he cannot keep the nations in darkness any longer. The devil deceived mankind, but the light of the gospel is now shining and dispels his delusions. The devil led mankind to imitate his wicked rebellion, but the death of Christ breaks the power of sin, that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, bringing us into eternal death. But Christ's death redeems you from condemnation and death. You might pass from death into life. So what does the devil have to hold you? He has lost his power against those who trust in Christ. So Jesus delivers sinners from the dominion 
of the evil one. He overthrew the world and the devil in that hour, all hostility, by his death and resurrection. So trust in King Jesus to deliver you. It is wrong to think that the devil's dominion over this earth is secure or increasing. No, he has been cast out, and he is more and more suffering the consequences of that mortal blow. Resist, therefore, the devil, firm in your faith. Know that you face a defeated foe. Do not cling to the ways of this fallen world and of the evil one. Those are the ways of the past. Those are the ways that are passing away, along with those who are devoted to them. So Jesus, by his death, overthrows his enemies, the world and the devil. Next, King Jesus, by his death, shall draw all the world to himself. That's what the Pharisees say, and there's a lot of irony in the Gospel of John, where someone says something, and it actually means more than they realize. It's truer than they think. We saw that earlier when the high priest said, oh, it's good that one man... that one man should die for the nation, right? And he was just thinking of political expediency, that we need to get rid of this troublemaker so the Romans don't pick on us. So we, One man should die for the nation. And John, in writing the gospel, says, you're right, he did die for the nation and for all the children of God scattered abroad, but in a way more deep than you think. Well, similarly here, the Pharisees say, look, the world has gone after him, and it would continue to do so. Then the Greeks begin to come a sign of things to come. Jesus would not remain alone. A seed that doesn't die is going to remain alone. But if it's planted, it bears many more seeds, a lot of people to accompany it, just as Christ's people would accompany him. He would bear fruit. His death would prove fruitful. It would not be in vain. As he says in verse 32, when he's lifted up, when he's crucified, he would draw all people to himself, Jew and Gentile, all over the world. And this was part of the prophecy that he fulfilled by riding on that young donkey. Just as Zechariah had prophesied, he will speak peace to the nations and extend his reign to the ends of the earth. He spoke peace to those who were near. He spoke peace to those who were far off. He continues to speak through his gospel, drawing them to saving faith, to salvation through him. Jesus defeats his enemies, but he also subdues his people to himself, making them willing subjects, ready to follow him, drawing them to himself. So know that Jesus saves the world and inherits the nations. His death will not, bear, will not fail to bear much fruit. Having won the battle at the cross, he now plunders the enemy's camp and leads a host of captives to freedom. Know as well that Jesus is the one who draws people to him. He didn't just say, when I'm raised up, a lot of people will be drawn to me. He says, I will draw all people to myself. He converts his people. He releases them from bondage. He brings them to saving faith out of the darkness of their sins. They would re resist God, but for his grace. His death is the power to draw us out of blindness and death. This passage is contrary both to Arminianism and Universalism. The Arminians believe that Jesus died for all people, but then left it up to the power of individuals whether to accept this, leaving it indefinite. Maybe he'll save everyone, maybe he'll save no one. 
But this verse teaches that Jesus dies for and draws to himself those who will be saved. He both secures the redemption by his death, and then he draws them to receive that salvation. It would be no benefit unless one is drawn to Jesus, but he will draw them. Universalists believe that all people, without exception, will be saved. But here it's only those who are drawn to Jesus that are saved. That is the way of salvation. Those who come to him will by no means be cast out and will be raised up on the last day. Those who come to Jesus will be saved. So it is not all people, no matter what they do, uh, only those who believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, he says some will love their life and lose it, but others will hate their life, will count it as loss, will follow Christ, and will have eternal life. What then does all people mean? Not every single individual throughout the world, but either mankind is considered just as a, as a whole, without necessarily every individual, or with an emphasis on the fact that it's all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, the nations, that they will be drawn, similar to how the Pharisees say, the whole world is going after him. Uh, he has come for the world. Therefore, come to Jesus. If that's the way of salvation, we should all be sure that we do so. We should exalt him with the crowd. Hosanna! Hosanna to the king of Israel. And you should share the news. These people bore witness. This is what Christ's disciples do. They saw from the sign to believe in Jesus. Right, Catherine? And what did they do? Alfred? What did they do? They told other people about it. And that way the news spread. And what happened then? More people came to see Jesus. More people began to worship Jesus, to praise him. This is an illustration of evangelism. Those who had seen Lazarus raised came to welcome him, and they bore witness to other people. And then the crowd increased as the good news spread. In Revelation 7, we see a great multitude from all nations before the heavenly throne. What are they waving? Palm branches in praise of King Jesus. It doesn't end. We continue to praise him. The crowd of Palm Sunday is an image of the church praising their king, telling others the news that they might come to Jesus and join in the celebration. Next point is that King Jesus, by his death, brings salvation and honor to his servants. He prophesied that the, Zechariah prophesied that the king who comes on the donkey's colt would bring salvation. Righteous and having salvation is he. Not only does a good king defeat the enemy, draw a willing people to serve him, but he also defeat, defends and delivers his people and gives them peace and honor. In John 12, 26, Jesus tells his disciples that he will bring them with him to honor and glory. His glorification through death and resurrection is for the benefit of his servants. He says, where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is not a king who lives in luxury while his servants live in squalor and poverty. Rather, he shares with them the glory and honor that he receives from the Father. They will have to follow him through suffering, through the path that he will tread. But where, they, where he 
goes, so will they go. Jesus gained eternal life for sinners by his death. Those who count their lives as lost and entrust their lives to Christ, ready to suffer with him, will keep their life forever. If you follow Jesus in this life, then you shall be with Jesus after death and share in his glory. When he returns in glory, you shall be like him, body and soul. The Apostle Paul compares your resurrection to a seed being planted and raised. Is the seed look like the plant? Is, is, is there some difference? Is the plant more glorious than the seed? Yes. But is there continuity? Is it the seed that turns into the plant? That's true as well. The body that's uh, perishable, corruptible, will be raised immortal, imperishable, for we will be made like Christ. In his humanity, you know, we won't, don't become God, but we shall be raised in glory. King Jesus brings salvation and honor to his servants through his death. So in conclusion, Jesus is the promised king of Israel. He saves the people of God. He rules them and defends them. He's greater than King David. King David gave peace to Israel. He saved them from their enemies. They uh, followed him. But Jesus is the greater king. He is the king who overcomes the world and its ruler. He draws the world to himself. He brings salvation and honor to his people. Therefore, what are we told to do? What does this passage tell you to do? What's the imperative, the, the command, the exhortation? Fear not, daughter of Zion. Should you fear? Fear not. Fear might come naturally. Jesus had fear as he came to death, but he also overcame that fear, looking to the joy that was set before him, seeking the glory of his Father. So his people are told to fear not. Your king is coming, and he has come. As Calvin comments, true joy comes to us through Christ, that freed from the tyranny of Satan, the yoke of sin being broken, guilt canceled, and death abolished, we freely boast, relying on the protection of our king, since they who are placed under his guardianship ought not to fear any danger. Not that we are free from fear so long as we live in this world, but because confidence founded upon Christ rises superior to all fear. So let us fear not, not fear. Rejoice instead with the crowd. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Joyfully honor our King. He has come. He speaks peace to you, to the nations. He is drawing the world to himself. He has brought salvation, has provided the blood of the covenant. He has been lifted up, and he is highly exalted. He has overcome the evil one and is routing his forces. Hosanna to the King of Israel. Let's pray. Dear God, we give thanks for sending your Son for our salvation, that he might raise us out of the pit that he might bring us peace, that he would protect us and give us glory and honor, which we were far from deserving, which we deserved quite the opposite. 
We pray that you would help us to remember the great benefits that you have given us, that we would be moved to true joy and gratitude, that we might overcome our fears and press on with the hope that your gospel provides. We pray that you would extend the kingdom of your Son, that you would fulfill these promises and give him all the nations as you have promised, that every people might call upon him and embrace the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.